0: The podcast you are listening to is based in fact, a true crime podcast. Join host Lisa O'Brien as she examines America's most infamous true crime cases through the lens of the court, not the court of public opinion. No rumors, no spin, no theories, just fact. Here's Lisa O'Brien. In episode 16, Kyle and I are looking at the case against Benjamin Cole. Cole is scheduled to face execution in Oklahoma on October 20th, 2022. In 2002, Cole killed his nine month old daughter, Brianna, while his wife was out doing laundry. We'll talk about the crime. Cole's trial, appeals, and post-conviction claims, which have included multiple attempts by his attorneys to challenge his competency to be executed in both state and federal courts. We'll also address some of the misconceptions regarding criminal culpability and competency to be tried and or executed in the context of the legal system. And good evening, Kyle. Welcome back.
1: Good evening, Lisa. How are you?
0: Very well. Um, Of course, the other thing that's on everyone's mind, I'm sure, is uh, Adnan Syed, a judge in Baltimore on Monday after a motion to vacate filed by the outgoing state's attorney who is currently facing federal fraud and perjury charges. Uh, A motion to vacate was filed by her on Wednesday, September 14th. On Friday, September 16th, the judge scheduled a hearing on Monday, September 19th, and at the end of that hearing released Adnan Syed from prison after 23 years, and she vacated his murder conviction for the strangulation murder of Heyman Lee on January 13th, 1999. Um, for... Syed supporters of course that's wonderful news but for anybody who's taken a critical look at the case and looked beyond the narrative invented for serial undisclosed in the case against Adnan Syed by Amy Berg um, it's a little disturbing and a little frightening
1: yeah and I just I feel bad for these family you know they keep getting this through the mud you know they have to go live, they continue to have to live through this trauma over and over again by the innocence fraud. Yes.
0: Me. And, you know, we have to comment. Um, I participated in like a roundtable on Sunday, uh, the day before the hearing with Roberta Glass on Roberta Glass, true crime report. Um, and uh, her other guests were um, Rob Chadwick and William Ramsey, uh, both social media, Uh, people who have researched and commented on the case. Um, And then one of the things that we learned after the hearing from the attorney who was pro bono handling uh, on behalf of the Lees as victims under Maryland victim rights laws, um, Heyman Lee's brother Young was contacted on Tuesday. The motion was filed on Wednesday. It was set for hearing on Sun, on Friday, and the hearing was on Monday. He, I don't care what anybody says, that is not adequate or reasonable notice.
1: No, not at all. You By can't any stretch of the imagination. To, yeah, you can't um, expect people just to upend their lives to right. all of a sudden have a day's notice. And you guys did a great job. I listened to that show. Both Thank of you. It was really great.
0: Thank you. So um, it wasn't, it certainly was not a fair proceeding. And in my opinion, um, I read the motion to vacate. It was awful. It was horrible. And it was nothing but conclusory allegations that were never even ultimately proven at the hearing. They didn't put on any testimony from, you know, people who worked with Christina Gutierrez who said, yes, we never knew anything about this suspect's existence or we never heard about this. Although, as I recall, the failed polygraph testing for uh, the Mr. AS, who found the body, uh, Alonzo Sellers, that was addressed at trial. That was brought out at trial, and that was used to try to uh, impact his credibility at the trial.
1: Yeah, it so, sounded very, very dubious at best. I mean, yeah. they didn't. It seems very strange. And, almost Like you said on the podcast, just the, the state's attorney was just trying to do it for political points. For, it just seemed really weird.
0: Yeah. And I think another misconception that a lot of people have is just because an alternate suspect existed during the course of the investigation, that is not in and of itself exculpatory evidence. There has to be something that ties that suspect to the victim, to the crime scene, to the murder Right. in order for a defendant to even be able to talk about that suspect. Well,
1: you know, we say this a lot on these cases. It's amazing that, you know, the people that always believe the convicted or innocent, they have two totally different standards, meaning all this evidence is against the convicted. But, oh, there's one guy who was seen near the crime scene. Oh, that's totally enough evidence. He's totally Correct. guilty.
0: Correct, and that is exactly um, somebody claiming that a person threatened Hay with uh, making her disappear is evidence to accuse that person of murder, but a letter from Hay breaking up with Adnan Syed that has his handwriting saying, I will kill, is not sufficient evidence.
1: Yeah, but if they always would apply that same standard, It's yeah, I never understand the way that they can go through those mental gymnastics.
0: Yeah. So um, I don't know from what the the Lee family attorney said uh, during his interview with Roberta. I don't know that there's any recourse for this. Uh, I was hoping that the AG would would challenge the order on the basis that it was not proven the allegations and the motion were not proven in the hearing. Uh, the judge, I mean, the judge had a written order already prepared. So she's right. not really interested like it was in, in the bag. meeting the requirements of the law. Um, she's interested with going along with what, you know, what Marilyn Mosby says or not Marilyn what? Mosby. It's a former innocence project. I don't think anyone who has worked for the innocence project should ever be qualified or permitted to work in any state attorney, district attorney office, even in a right. quote conviction integrity union, because I don't yeah. think that they have the objectivity to recognize no, not at all when they're totally wrong about an alleged wrongful conviction,
1: right? And it but becomes about day, winning. A... Yes.
0: And achieving the goal and really undermining the system that they're supposed to be a working part of.
1: Right. It's not about conviction integrity. It's just about getting people out of prison. And especially, as you always point out, there seems to be this pattern of getting men off who murder women. There's. It's a very misogynistic mm-hmm. movement.
0: Yeah. So, all right. Well, that is enough on Syed. And I think probably, um, if not sometime this year, certainly um, maybe early season two, we'll take a deep dive into that case. And hopefully um, the situation has resolved in a, a more equitable fashion than uh, what we have right now, which was not not fair and equitable and just.
1: No, not at all. When it's not so, fair, too, that we have this, you know, we have this other sort of two systems of justice, those that get attention by podcasters and then those that don't, just
0: mm-hmm. isn't fair. Yeah. And another thing I have to say is I do not think, and I think every state for their AGs and for the DAs. I don't think that any state AG, county DA, parish DA, should be able to do something so rash when they lose an election.
1: Yeah, that's a really good point.
0: I think that once they lose the election, their, their power should be curtailed because what Marilyn Mosby is doing is she ends up declaring Adnan Syed actually innocent or exonerated or dropping the charges. He is going to have a multimillion dollar lawsuit against the state of Maryland. Right. And he, yeah. he's going to be, you know, that's going to be exhibit one in or exhibit a in his claim. And, um, you know that's her way, and she's not doing it for Adnan Syed, and she's not doing it because it's the right thing to do. She's doing it to stick it to the people of Maryland who didn't reelect her.
1: Yeah, exactly. it's, it's, and oddly, any, it's
0: anybody who believes decision. otherwise, yeah. I have a bridge, I have a double bridge on the Mississippi River in New Orleans that I would love <laughs> to sell you.
1: Well, yeah, and I mean exactly because I mean I don't know, I don't know if she. I don't know off the top of my head if she's at the end of a four year term or eight year term, but, you know, she could have done this her first day in office. She could have run on it. But yeah, you're exactly right to do this. You know, after she's been booted out of office, just kind of, you know, vindictively doesn't seem doesn't seem the right thing to do at all.
0: Correct. So. All right. Well, let's get to our case tonight. Uh, We're looking at another Oklahoma case. Uh, this is Benjamin Robert Cole. Uh, he is due to be executed on October 20th, 2022, unless a court declares him incompetent to be executed or uh, the state or the, the parole board grants him current clemency and the, the governor agrees and uh, grants him clemency and commutes the sentence from death to life. So uh, first of all, um, This one is a really sad case, and it took me a long time to complete my research because the victim was nine-month-old Brianna Victoria Cole. She was born March 27, 2002. Her father was Benjamin Robert Cole Sr., the man charged with her murder. Um, She has a half-brother, Robert Benjamin Robert Cole Jr. Um, She also has two... Additional half-siblings, uh, one named Christopher and the other one, I could not uh, relocate the name. I saw it in passing and didn't write it down. Um, And her cause of death was trauma. Uh, her lumbar spine was broken, severed. And there was a transection or tear of her aorta. Uh, The perpetrator was her father, Benjamin Robert Cole, Sr. He was born um, April 8, 1965. And then, of course, he had four children, Benjamin Jr., Rihanna, and Christopher, and a a fourth child. Um, He had a prior stint in the California prison system for abuse of a child. That was Benjamin Jr., uh, which included injuries, included a broken leg. Um, and uh, his victim was Brianna Victoria Cole, his nine-month-old daughter. The crime occurred on December 20th, tw- 2002. Brianna was alone uh, with her father, his her mother, and I. they said wife, but it may not have been a marriage. It may have been like common-law marriage.
1: Yeah, it long. Um,
0: yeah. She was out of the apartment doing laundry. Bri- Brianna began began crying, and Cole went in, grabbed her ankles, and flipped her over from her stomach to her back, which inflicted fatal injuries on her. Um, you know, he didn't grab, he didn't pick her up and and turn her over. He grabbed her by the ankles and flipped her.
1: Yeah, that's what it's almost. Yeah, it's almost like he. Yeah, Like he was
0: mad, like she's crying, how dare she? And, you know, he was drinking and playing video games and doing other things. So he had more important things than the care of his nine-month-old daughter for the few minutes that his wife was away or girlfriend was away uh, doing laundry. Of course, Brianna stopped crying. So Cole went back to his video game. And when his wife returned 10 to 15 minutes later, she was concerned because Brianna didn't seem right. Cole went into the room, looked at her and said the baby looked fine. And then apparently, I guess, went back to his drink in a video game. When Brianna stopped breathing, 911 was called and Cole performed CPR waiting on arrival of EMS. Uh, But when they got there and began caring for Brianna, he didn't tell them. What he had done. Um, she went to the hospital. Of
1: course. Not. Hmm? Uh. No, I just said, of course not. He's not going to tell them yeah. what he did. That he flipped and her over. Like, uh,
0: of course. It. These were these were catastrophic uh, injuries, and Brianna, they couldn't save her. But they didn't know what what was wrong, because the injuries were not uh, something that that they were able to see or detect in their medical treatment. Um, Cole did not also tell the police about grabbing Brianna and flipping her over. Um, it was during his second interview with police when he was confronted with the ME's report detailing the injuries and that they wouldn't have just come from the baby laying in a crib, uh, that he asked police how much time am I looking at?
1: Is there a thought that if he would have told the paramedics when they got there, what he had done that that might could have helped save her or was it going to be fatal?
0: um, No, these, these injuries were, were fatal. Uh, again, the, the, her spine, her lumbar spine was severed.
1: Oh God. I know why this took you so long. It's horrible.
0: And her aorta, there was a tear. So she was bleeding heavily. uh, And, you know, like they would have known she was bleeding heavily and she was in in bad shape, but they wouldn't have known why. So they wouldn't have known how to make it better. Um, He then admitted police that he caused the injuries that led to Brianna's death. Uh, In a written statement, he said Brianna was crying. So I went into the room to flip her over by grabbing her by the leg and flipping her over backwards. Uh, He was, of course, on the 21st of December arrested uh, in Claremore, Rogers County, Oklahoma, and he was eventually charged with first degree uh, child abuse murder. And in, in Oklahoma, first degree child abuse murder does not require proof of intent to cause a victim's death. Um, and that is because children are such vulnerable victims that you can cause their death just, you know, by by the significant abuse and they die. So you don't, they, the, the it, first degree murder in most states, in most cases, you have to prove intent to cause death. And in child abuse murder, you don't.
1: Right, yeah, that makes sense.
0: So, um, he was uh, charged in Rogers County, Oklahoma. Uh, the judge was Honorable J. Dwayne Stidley. Although, in some of the material I read, it was a, a Judge Smith. So, that's an interesting question. But according to the Oklahoma court dockets, it was Judge Stidley. Um, His counsel at the time of trial was Ray Hasselman and Patrick Abbott Ball. And the, oh, no, that was counsel for the state. Apologize. Rogers County DA. Uh, Counsel for the accused was G. Lynn Birch and James C. Bolin, who were were attorneys with the Oklahoma Indigent Defense Service. Now, one thing I want to mention, Cole was something of a a very hyper religious person and he became very religious for example he didn't want his mom going to a presbyterian church because in his mind that was not an acceptable christian faith um during his pre trial period was he, he hyper
1: religious like you know, before the murder, or was it he something that he kind of find faith after he was arrested? He was arrested.
0: I think he was becoming before the murder. And apparently, oddly enough, when he drank, he became hyper, more, more hyper religious when he drank, according to some of the sources that <laughs> I, mean, I, I don't need to
1: laugh, but that is, that is the first time I think I've ever heard that. That is an
0: um, interesting
1: phenomenon for Mr. Cole.
0: So, um, but he was uh, tried October twelfth two 2004 to October 20, 2004 for first degree murder. Now, um, kind of went off the track. Prior to his trial, there was a trial about his competency to be tried. Because his religious beliefs, he wanted Pentecostal attorneys. And when his attorneys questioned his religious beliefs and his competency to be tried, he stopped speaking to them. And then during pretrial proceedings, he would sit at the table and not move a muscle. And he would have a Bible open in front of him, but he would pretend to read it, but not turn the pages. Or he would just look at the closed Bible sitting on the table. So he was ex- you know, he was ex- uh, exhibiting these things that of course defense attorneys say he must be crazy. But um, he was evaluated. He was found to be competent. He had a competency trial in Oklahoma, which is something that I think is kind of unique to o- Oklahoma when questions of competency arise. Uh, prior to trial so he was found by a jury in Oklahoma to be competent to stand trial remember that because it will come into play again um, but he was tried Yeah, I mean October. even though he was
1: acting strangely the fact that he wanted and, and, you know particular yeah. little religious sect and attorneys is something that a competent person would do not somebody who was crazy
0: Well, no, it's actually his attorney, according to his attorneys, because he was doing those things, he was not competent. But the the basically the finding was um, he was doing those things as a a a considered choice of his and that does not make him incompetent. And
1: yeah, exactly. That seems like he's making a very rational, competent decision because he's he wants a particular type of attorney. Correct
0: and he wants it and he doesn't want the attorneys representing him questioning his religion or his competency and that's more that's yeah, exactly. more what it is when they question his religion and his competency he's not going to cooperate with them he's not going to deal with them but that's his choice you know he he can't benefit from that choice by being declared unable to stand trial And I think a lot of people don't realize just because you have a mental illness, uh, just because you have a personality disorder, um, just because you want to walk around with a toilet seat on your head and call yourself King John,
1: (laughs) (laughs) that doesn't mean. That's a mental image I'm not going to be able to get out of my head. I think I have Um, my Halloween costume. (laughs) I'm going to be King John with the toilet seat on my head.
0: Just please go to Home Depot and buy an unused one.
1: (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. (laughs)
0: Um, But that doesn't make you incompetent to stand trial because it doesn't demonstrate that you don't understand the nature of the proceedings and that you can't help your attorneys. Because if you want to sit at the table with the seat on your head, And be referred to as king john during the proceedings but you can you know provide your attorney with information and you can answer questions then you are competent even though what you're doing is odd um so that is um kind of an understanding is you can be odd and you can do bizarre things but that doesn't make you incompetent
1: yeah, and it doesn't long, even there's a, there's necessarily
0: mean crazy.
1: <laughs> yeah, there's a there's a long way between being eccentric and being you know legally incompetent.
0: Right. So, um, so he was tried. He was found guilty during the um first phase, and then during the penalty phase, phase two, which in Oklahoma is called stage two, uh, which was tried on October twenty first, two thousand four. Um, The aggravators offered by the state were especially that the murder was especially heinous, atrocious, and cruel, that Cole had a prior conviction for felony involving the use of threat of violence, which was his prior child abuse charge, and that he was a continuing threat. Um, The jury found, I believe, only the heinous, atrocious, and cruel and the prior felony aggravator. I don't think they found the continuing threat. And he was sentenced to death. And that was formally, uh, he was formally sentenced on December 8th, 2004. His direct appeal attorneys were James L. Rankings of Ogleton and Welch, which appears that he actually had private counsel retained to represent him by someone somewhere. And uh, the state was represented by the AG, uh, through Jennifer Dickinson. Or Dixon. Apologize for that. Um, he A notice of appeal was filed on December 15, 2004. His brief was filed on January twenty third, 2006. So there was a process of extensions and getting the records and all those things, which took about two years. Um, so when In some of these cases, when people say there's a rush to execute, it's like if there's a rush to execute, why is it two years to even get his direct appeal started? Um, Yeah, we talked
1: about our last case, right? They're talking about, you know, rush to judgment. It was like seven years between the verdict and the appeal.
0: Correct. Because he he had his sentencing reversed and had to go back and have a new sentencing because that was James Coddington. So um, the uh, pretrial issue, he raised multiple issues and the way it's organized is the pretrial issues, propositions two and four, uh, that he um, he requested a continuance in order to prepare and acquire critical mitigation evidence, uh, more related with his refusal to speak to attorneys who were calling him a religious nut and incompetent to stand trial and that um, he was denied the effective assistance of counsel after he developed a a conflict with trial counsel and requested to have them replaced. The denial of that request, he argued, was violation of his 6th, 8th, and 14th Amendments and the Oklahoma Constitution. Um, Then he had first stage issues in trial of the evidence of his prior criminal conviction and prison sentence in California for aggravated child abuse was erroneously admitted that he uh, that there were three gruesome autopsy photos of Rihanna that were admitted at trial that deprived him of his constitutional rights to a fundamentally fair trial. Again, citing the 6th, 8th, and 14th Amendments in Oklahoma Constitution. Then he raised sentencing stage issues uh, regarding instructions about the heinous, atrocious, and cruel aggravating circumstance and um, that the evidence was insufficient to support the aggravating circumstance and that the aggravating circumstance was unconstitutionally vague and overbroad as it was being applied by this court. Um, he also uh, objected to the introduction of details of his prior conviction uh, during the first stage proceedings and prejud- that prejudiced him during the penalty phase that the Oklahoma crime of child abuse murder as one of general intent fails to provide a constitutionally adequate culpability requirement that must result in a vacator of the death sentence in this case as having been imposed in violation of the Eighth and Fourteenth Amendments, then uh, Proposition Nine was the uh, was about the introduction of the photographs of Brianna depicting her in life during the penalty phase violated the Eighth and Fourteenth Amendments, which is a common um, a common complaint raised during direct appeal in Oklahoma's death penalty cases um, that was raised in Richard Glossop. I think it was raised in Coddington as well.
1: Yeah. Um, it always seems strange to me that they, they sort of object to, you know, seeing the victim, you know, picture of the victim, but you know, picture of the crime scene, no, this spreads this. So it's like, yeah, that's, that's just evidence right. showing the jury what happened.
0: Well, it's, that is, that is generally admission of evidence is at the discretion of the trial court, but they raise it. And even though it's generally not successful, um, I think the, the belief is that at some point in time, the U S Supreme court is going to step in and say, no, you can't do this because more and more the, the, The trial becomes about the accused rights, and the rights of the victims or victims' families are not uh, respected, and often are being whittled away as time goes on. Uh, He also raised he raised an error regarding the second day stage jury instruction on the definition of mitigating evidence, which deprived him of a fair sentencing proceeding, um, that he was denied his constitutional right to a jury trial by the failure of the trial court to instruct the jury that it must find the aggravating circumstances outweighed the mitigating evidence beyond a reasonable doubt. And then he raised issues affecting both phases or both stages. Uh, he alleged prosecutorial misconduct and seeking, seeking sympathy for the decedent, which violated his right to a fundamentally fair trial and sentencing proceeding in violation of the 6th, 8th, and 14th Amendments, and um, then that the cumulative effect of all the errors raised in this appeal denied him of a fundly, fundamentally fair trial. Uh, the Oklahoma Court of Criminal Appeals found no merit to any of his claims— um and specifically with the with regard to the pictures of Brianna's injuries while it did find that one of the pictures was close to crossing the line those photographs were necessary to see the injuries because they were not on the outside of the body so you had to see a picture of the spine severed you had to see a picture of the uh, injury to the aorta. So, yes, while those internal pictures are gruesome, they were necessary for the jury to understand the nature of the injuries inflicted on Brianna by Cole. Um, on July eleventh, two 2007, Cole's conviction and sentence were both affirmed. Um, he filed a writ at the U.S. Supreme Court on the 8th of November, he filed an application for extension of time, uh, which was granted on November 13th. And then on January 22nd, 2008, he filed his petition for writ of certiorari, asking the U.S. Supreme Court to uh, review the conviction and sentence. Uh, That was denied on May 19th, 2008. So it's at that time that his conviction and sentence become final. And the burden at that point shifts to Cole. If he says he's actually innocent, then he has to prove it. If he says there's error at his trial, he has to prove it. Uh, and that's something, too, that uh, will come into play. Now, if he had not applied for a writ with U.S. Supreme Court, his conviction and sentence would have become final, when the mandate was issued by the Oklahoma Court of Criminal Appeals or on the date of the decision, if there was no mandate issued. Uh, In some direct appeals, there's a mandate, but in other other states, the decision itself is the final determination. Um, So that is, uh, now he's he goes before the courts from this point forward as a guilty man. And he bears the burden of proof in all subsequent proceedings. So his state post-conviction. Right. It's a
1: good reminder that the, the appeals process isn't just to relitigate the trial and just to bring up mm-hmm. new stuff. He's already been convicted. It's up to him to have to prove that he's innocent. A-
0: Correct. And the the courts, the Oklahoma Criminal Court Court of Criminal Appeals has specifically said on many occasions that their state post conviction act is not meant to be a second direct appeal. So if you raise issues you raised on direct appeal, those issues are race judicata. They've already decided they're not going to look at it again and and make a new decision. Um, so in state post conviction, his counsel were was Vicky Ruth Adams Warnicky, uh, from normal Norman, Oklahoma. The the listings in the appellate opinions and the the docket at the. Uh, Court of Criminal Appeals don't identify her as being with indigent defense or public defender or anything like that. So, again, I think this may have been a private, she may have been a private attorney uh, retained by someone on Cole's behalf. Um, That could be incorrect, but that is the impression that I'm, the inference that I'm drawing based on how she's described. And then the state was represented by the Rogers County District Attorney. Uh, Of course, in Oklahoma, the venue is the Court of Criminal Appeals. If the issues raised require further development or are worthy of further development, then the case would be referred back to the district court for a hearing. The initial petition was filed on, excuse me, January 7, 2005, and then an application for post conviction relief was filed on February twenty eighth two thousand seven, and there was some different procedural administrative machinations on the docket uh, that weren't really substantive to the post conviction claims. So again, we have uh, a two year gap between. Um, the filing of an initial petition and the filing of an application raising issues to be decided by the court the the court. Um the first issue raised was Cole's competency to stand trial and the allegation was made that he was presently incompetent to assist in post-conviction proceedings. Uh, they raised ineffective assistance of counsel for failure to present compelling mitigation evidence during the second stage, and that compelling mitigation evidence was uh, the first child that he abused for whom he served time in California prison, uh, that child did not hold any grudges against him and had expressed to post-conviction investigators that he would like to have some form of relationship with his father. And so they felt that that child should have been brought into court in the trial the death penalty trial and put on the stand to testify that he didn't have any grudges about the abuse that was inflicted on him by his father um
1: that's which very i can't wrap my head around that that's a very strange <laughs> yeah
0: especially when given the fact her. that the strategy at trial was to keep try to keep that abuse completely exactly. out of right. the trial
1: yeah exactly well, so, I was going to ask you earlier, I was surprised that the ineffective counsel wasn't on a bill because as we talked, I think, last week, that's a basic standard for every convicted person.
0: Mm-hmm. In, in Oklahoma, you can actually raise ineffective assistance of counsel of some issues on direct appeal. Um, and they also allege that his direct appeal counsel were ineffective, I guess, for not raising those issues on direct appeal and that his sentence is suspect and unreliable due to new rule of law, which was a case called Anderson versus state in which the 85% rule, the, the court did not allow the jury to hear that Anderson would have to, to serve 85% of any sentence uh, imposed by the court uh and so his sentencing his sentence was vacated and he was remanded for new sentencing with a jury being told but that was not a death penalty case it was a life in prison case um and then he also alleged uh cumulative error uh he filed a motion for discovery and a motion for evidentiary hearing at the same time and then on December 18, 2007 he filed a notice uh, requesting a competency evaluation. Um, the decision was rendered on January 24th, 2008, and relief was denied. Basically, they found that he his competency was determined prior to trial, um, and that was by a jury, and that in Cole's particular case, the record was actually quite substantial regarding issues related to his competency. And once again, the court found that his deliberate decisions not to communicate with counsel who questioned his competency or his religion or religious beliefs uh, was not a sign that he was not competent to be tried. And I think they also found and this is interesting, that you don't actually have to be able to cooperate with counsel during post-conviction proceedings because post-conviction proceedings are not a new trial and they certainly aren't a time to re-litigate issues raised at trial or on direct appeal.
1: Yeah, then that he, makes a lot of sense. Because yeah, your yeah, your, your mental state post conviction shouldn't beat your man
0: at all. Correct. So um and and competency. Believe it or not, is something that is fluid. Somebody can have a uh, a a period of time when they're so depressed that they, you know, would be determined to be incompetent. But then, with therapy, medication, their competency can be restored. So um, yeah, that makes sense. So it's not something. Once you're incompetent, you're never going to be competent again um but I, and again the defense found doctors that would say he was not competent but a lot of their determinations especially with one of the experts were speculative because Cole wouldn't talk to them because they he knew that, that they were trying to say he was not competent
1: right I mean, that seems to be the general rule, though, right, with the defense experts. You can find an expert, and if you pay them enough, they will testify to pretty much anything the defense counsel wants.
0: To a degree. Um, in and, and when you're dealing with death penalty litigation, I would say, yes, that is more common than not. Um,
1: Yeah, I mean, fair to a degree. They're not going to go crazy. But yes, if you need to say this person, you know, you get a pretty good spectrum that you can get them to testify on why you want to say.
0: Uh, But I I mean, I've seen in the civil realm, um, you know, I've seen like accident reconstruction experts who call and say, look, I've looked at this and your client does not come out looking good. Uh, it looks like even though your client swears up and down that it was the other guy's fault, it was really your client's fault. And when you're dealing with a plaintiff, that's not a good a, a good outcome for a, an expert review. And um, so I really can't help you. And, you know, I've seen it on the defense side as well, saying, you know, your client claims it was a plaintiff's fault, but. I, you know, my, all of my recreations say it's his fault. And so I'm not going to be able to help you. And the worst thing in the world is to, to end up having your opponent find out that that expert has determined that your, your particular client is at fault and then is able to secure the, the, that expert's testimony. Um,
1: Yeah, absolutely. That seems like a death knell.
0: So, uh, but it depends on, and I've, I, I've worked for a plaintiff's attorney that would like contact every expert in the, in the area just so that they couldn't be hired by the other side, even though he'd never hire himself. (laughs) So, um, but, uh, that was in Tennessee. So, um, Federal habeas, he he went on to federal habeas court. Um, He requested appointment of counsel. So then he was represented by the Federal Public Defender's Office. Uh, The attorneys were Thomas Kenneth Lee and Timothy Richard Payne. The state of Oklahoma was still being represented by the Attorney General of Oklahoma. And the um, case was in the Western District United States District Court, Western District of Oklahoma, um, Honorable Claire V. Egan, Chief U.S. District Judge. And the grounds raised in his, uh, his motion to appoint was filed June 2nd, 2008. And then on May 18th, 2009, so a little bit under a year later, he files this petition for writ of habeas corpus. Um, they argued in ground one that he was incompetent to stand trial and incompetent throughout all subsequent proceedings in violation of his right to effective assist- assistance of counsel in due process, not to be tried while incompetent, that he was denied his right to the effective assist- assistance of counsel because there was a complete breakdown in communication between Cole and his attorneys at trial, that the trial court erred in denying a request for continuance to acquire and prepare critical mitigating evidence that he was denied his right to effective assistance of counsel during the second stage because counsel failed to investigate and present mitigation evidence that would personalize him to the jury, uh, that appellant counsel performed ineffectively on direct appeal, that the status of Oklahoma's crime of child abuse murder as one of general intent fails to provide a constitutionally adequate culpability requirement that must result in vacatur of the death sentence as having been imposed in violation of the Eighth and Fourteenth Amendments. Um, the admission of gruesome autopsy photos dev- deprive Cole of the right of his rights under the Eighth and Fourteenth Amendments. Those are the amendments that address cruel and unusual punishment. Is the Eighth Amendment and Fourteenth Amendment is the amendment that applies those um, those rights in state proceedings. Uh, that there was prosecutorial misconduct and seeking sympathy for the decedent by repeated references to God and religion infected both stages of Cole's trial, resulting in violations of his rights under the Eighth and Fourteenth Amendments. Um, that there was a failure to provide an adequate instruction that informed the jury that it must find conscious physical suffering as a fact beyond a reasonable doubt before concluding that the murder was especially heinous, atrocious, or cruel, and that deprived Cole of his Sixth Amendment right to a fair trial, his Eighth Eighth Amendment right to a reliable sentencing determination, and his Fourteenth Amendment right to due process of law. Um, Ground 10 was that his sentence did not comport with the Eighth and Fourteenth Amendments because there was insufficient evidence to support that the murder is especially heinous, atrocious, or cruel that Oklahoma's heinous, atrocious, or cruel aggravating circumstances was unconstitutionally vague and overbroad, that the aggravating circumstance fails to narrow the class of defendants eligible for the death penalty, that the trial court's failure to instruct the jury that it must find aggravating circumstances outweigh mitigating evidence beyond a reasonable doubt, denied Cole's constitutional right to a jury trial under the 6th, 8th, and 14th Amendments. And that's that's something they, they raise, and I think I've seen it in Reed as well. So they're doing it in Texas. But that's not, you don't have to find aggravating circumstances outweighing mitigating circumstances beyond a reasonable doubt. All you have to do is find that the aggravating circumstances exist beyond a reasonable doubt. And it actually right. helps that they don't say you have to find mitigating circumstances to any degree. If you think they exist and you think they, they uh, reduce your defendant's culpability, then you can find that they outweigh the aggravating circumstances, but they want jury staff to Uh, say, Oh, the aggravating circumstances outweigh the mitigating by beyond a reasonable doubt. So, you know, that, is going to make it harder for juries to sentence people to death. If they, if they find aggravating and mitigating are kind of equal, then they can't sentence the defendant to death. So um, there's a method to their madness.
1: Yeah, they're clever. <laughs> I'm giving credit. My um, favorite one of those appeals is the guy who is kind of, you know, the religious intensely religious person objecting to God being mentioned during the trial. That was my favorite.
0: Well, no, his attorneys are are objecting to that. And what it was, was basically uh, the prosecutor during, I think, second stage closing, repeated something his father once said, was that a baby crying is God's way of asking you to help that child. Or something to but, that effect.
1: Uh, and he doesn't believe that, I guess. Now,
0: his attorneys don't believe it. His attorneys are godless heathens.
1: <laughs> there you go. Okay, That's uh, He <laughs> wouldn't. He wouldn't talk to them because they made fun of his. Uh, godly well, influences. they,
0: you know, they they used his his religious beliefs as a way of saying, "He look, he must be crazy."
1: Yeah, he's a Christian. He must be a
0: lunatic. Uh-huh. Uh, then he also argued, of course, cumulative error at both phases deprived him of his constitutional rights. Um, The decision was rendered on September 1st, 2011. Uh, relief was denied and his request to toll and obey uh, the proceedings were denied because apparently, I think he wanted to go back to state court and litigate his competency in post-conviction. And so he wanted the court not to decide anything until that competency was decided, and that was denied. He was granted a certificate of appealability on the breakdown in communication with counsel, the ineffective assistance claims, the admission of the autopsy photos, the prosecutorial misconduct allegations, and the insufficient evidence supporting heinous, atrocious, and cruel aggravator. Uh, that was, of course, appealed to the 10th Circuit Court of Appeal, which the notice was filed October 3rd, 2011. The 10th Circuit affirmed the denial of habeas relief on November 18th, 2013. On February 18th, 2014, they amended their decision. They denied rehearing and they denied an expanded certificate of appealability. And it appears that they really just amended the decision regarding the admission of the autopsy photos and the uh, breakdown in communication. Mm -hmm. There was something in the first decision that should have been addressed that was not addressed. And so they amended to address that issue, um, but it wasn't it wasn't really a substantial difference. Um, it's not like they they said, "Oh, wait, you know, we're we're ref- we're reversing and remanding this to the district court to grant relief on this issue." Because ultimately, they ended up affirming the denial of relief. Um, and the mandate for that issued on March 12, 2014. Uh, Cole's attorneys again went to the U.S. Supreme Court. They filed an application for extension on May 6, 2014. Um, that was granted on May twelfth, And the writ was filed on July 15, 2014. And when that petition was denied on October 6, 2014, his habeas denial became final. So there, the post-conviction, he's exhausted all of his post-conviction remedies. He's had one round of state post-conviction. He's had one round of federal habeas post-conviction. And he's been denied relief. So none of the issues he raised were, were meritorious and his trial was confirmed as having been fair and comporting with all due process requirements.
1: Right, uh, And this is what? We're 13 years after the crime? Is that right? Is my we're, math uh,
0: we're 12 years because it was 2002, so 2014. Uh, on October 10th, 2014, the state applied for an execution date, Uh, because state and federal post-conviction remedies had been exhausted. Uh, Cole objected to this on October 15th, 2014, but that objection was denied on October 24th, 2014, and uh, his execution date was set for March 5th, 2015. And I read the objection, and I really could not... figure out what exactly (laughs) the basis of the objection was because it was really just a lot of um, a lot of uh, allegations about other things about competency and and that they're going to litigate competency etc etc um so then on the 28th of july Cole got a stay of execution from the U.S. Supreme Court pending resolution of Glossop versus Gross, which it was the challenge to yeah. the um, Oklahoma's execution protocol.
1: So he gets caught up in all of the Glossop appeals about the drugs.
0: Correct. And um, then in uh, in January of 2015, his attorneys also filed a federal, a successive federal claim alleging that Cole was not competent to be executed. Um, the a petition was filed, petition for writ of habeas corpus was filed on January thirtieth, twenty fifteen. A motion for discovery was filed on the sixth of June, twenty fifteen. Um. On the 29th of June, Oklahoma's method of execution was found to be constitutional by the U.S. Supreme Court, and then on July 8th of 2015, the federal litigation was stayed because, as it turns out, Cole should have been pursuing this claim in state court because he hadn't filed a, a state court uh, challenge to or a state court request to have his competency examined. So on September 16th, 2015, Cole filed a petition for writ of mandamus, challenging his competency to be executed and seeking an order requiring the warden to... um, comply with Oklahoma statute dealing with competency for execution. He also filed a petition for writ of prohibition on the same date, which challenged the execution protocol, which no longer used a barbiturate, which was what was was specified in the existing protocol. And then he filed an application for stay of execution. An order was issued on the 17th of September, directing a response from the warden of the, and state before September 24th, and uh, di- directing an expedited filing of the record with the clerk of court and transmitting the case back or remanding the case back to Rogers County and Honorable Jim D. Bland to examine Cole's competency. Uh, the warden filed an answer response on the 23rd of September there was a hearing held on the 28th of September um in the meantime while this is going on and this is a this case has been a little bit unusual because while the stay was in effect most of the time the attorneys just drop whatever they were doing until a new date is set but, I, I don't understand, I guess, because they thought they had a slam dunk because by this time, Cole's mental health, he's been diagnosed paranoid schizophrenic. Uh, his religious beliefs had take, have taken a bit of a, a kooky turn because now he's a messianic Jew. He's not cutting his hair. He's not shaving his beard. He's not cutting his beard. Um, he's gotten a little disheveled or a lot disheveled. Um, he's apparently not walking. He's not leaving his cell. Um, and he's not communicating with counsel or their experts. So maybe they think they have a slam dunk. And so they're continuing this. So in, they go back to federal court and they file a motion for access to their client and a motion for hearing. Um, then that's denied on the 30th of September. Uh, they file a. They get a stay of execution in the court of criminal appeals because by this time the protocol has been found to be acceptable, and Cole did have another date.
1: Hey but, Lisa, can we take a quick step back? Can you just explain? I'm the dot. Sometimes I can't connect. Is is if he had exhausted all of his state and federal appeals why is he still able to file all of these, you know, different, you know, competency briefs and all these other things if all of that stuff had been exhausted?
0: Well, the competency, competency is fluid and it can change. So you can go and have a competency determination and find you to be competent. And then two years later, you can go back and say well now things have changed
1: so is it about his mental state when he committed the crime or is it about his mental state when he's going to be executed
0: there's a competency when you commit the crime and that can impact whether you can be held culpable for the crime and that's usually a defense it's an affirmative defense so if you're gonna say I was crazy at the time, you have to admit that you committed the crime. Um, gotcha. But that can impact whether you can be, uh, whether you can be held culpable for it, and that usually results in a jury finding a not guilty by reason of insanity or mental disease or defect, um, or temporary insanity then there's competency to be tried. And that is whether or not you can assist your attorneys in your defense, whether you understand the nature of the proceedings against you and whether you understand that what you did was wrong. Um, that, you know, I committed a crime and I'm being tried for it. And I can, com- this is a crime I committed. Um, I think also in, in culpability is whether you understand right or wrong. Like, if, if Andrea Yates, right. and I think one of the things with Andrea Yates was, I mean, she called and said, I just drowned the kids. I was saving them from the devil. And so that's not, she's not lying and saying, you know, I fell asleep and apparently my older child tried to bathe all the kids at one time and all five of them drowned. And she wasn't trying to hide the crime. Um, she wasn't lying to police about how it happened. So that's a that's kind of a an indicator that she maybe did not dis- could not distinguish right from wrong at the time of the crime. And then to be tried, you have to be able to assist in your defense. You have to understand the proceedings. I mean, if you say the judge is an alien and if he finds me guilty, he's gonna bite off my head like a praying mantis then you don't understand the proceedings. Of course, it also depends if you tell your cellmate that that's what you're going to tell the state doctors. And then your cellmate says, yeah, he told me this is what he's going to tell the state doctors, then that's going to kind of hurt you. So, um,
1: But again, I thought that the state and the federal courts had already gone through all of these competency appeals. Well, they they went
0: through... They when went he, through prior the to trial, trial when he the- right? But and in defense, in the defense attorney's defense, things had changed. He was maybe more religious, he was not caring for himself, he was not cutting his hair. I mean, things had circumstances had changed that maybe appeared to be a deterioration of his mental state.
1: Well, okay, so that's what I'm trying to understand. Though, so does it does it matter if you say you were competent when you committed the crime, you were competent during your trial, but now 14 years later, you're a kookadoodle. Does that come to bear on whether or not you can be executed?
0: That is well it it can come to bear because if you don't understand the reason you're being executed if you think you're being executed to stop you from preaching to the other death row inmates, or you think you're being executed because the judge didn't like people with red hair. If you don't know this, if you don't know or don't express that you're being executed for the crime for which you were convicted, uh, which in Cole's cases, he was convicted of the murder of his daughter. And he's being executed because he murdered his daughter. Then you know you're you're incompetent to be executed.
1: Okay, gotcha. That okay, so that makes sense. So it, your mental state at the time of execution does come to bear.
0: It can come to bear, and and so they're filing now. It's interesting though that they're they have a proceeding going on in state court, but I guess the hearing led them to believe that that wasn't going to fall their way. So they go back to federal court and they try to claim there's some flaw in the state court process. And so they want the federal court now to step in and supersede the, the, the state court process. Um, now, in during this time, I think Cole had gotten a new execution date, which I did not find an order for a specific date. Um, But because of the this is also during the period of time for Glossop and Warner and Warner was executed with the wrong drug. And that led to a decision by the governor and the Department of Corrections and the Oklahoma Court of Criminal Appeals to say, okay, wait a second, we're going to stay all executions. We're not going to try and execute anybody else. And we're going to find out what happened with Warner why it happened with Warner and the state is going to rework their protocol. So on October 5th, 2015, this the general stay went into effect. Um, on October 6th, Cole filed a notice of exhaustion of state court remedies and request for scheduling order. Um, the court issued an order resetting deadlines and ordering a response from the state by November 17th. Cole then filed a motion to clarify on October 21st and a minute order was entered on October 21st, suspending the court's deadlines while the parties briefed and the court decide whether to administratively close the case. Because once the stay of execution goes into effect and Cole is not does not have an execution date. The determination of his com- competency kind of becomes a moot issue because if he doesn't have a, a an execution date, it doesn't matter that he's incompetent at this time. Uh, he filed an order a response to the order to show cause on the thirtieth of of uh, October, and um, the state was ordered to respond to that on October 12th, uh, November 12th, rather, a a response was filed basically taking the position that because all executions were stayed indefinitely, uh, Cole's competency to be executed had been adjudicated by the state court, the federal proceeding could be administratively closed. Uh, Cole filed a reply to that, and on uh, November 24th, 2015, the court administratively closed the case. On uh, October 2nd, the state uh, issued an opinion denying extraordinary relief and declaring his application for a stay of execution moot because all applications were stayed. Um, And then there was another stay issued on the 7th of October uh, and I think that was the indefinite stay. Uh, between October 30th, 2015 and January 29th, 2020, the state filed various status reports uh, on February 13th, 2020. Their amended protocol was filed. And then um, this one is one that kind of pissed me off. So be buckle up, buttercup. Um, he was represented by an attorney by the name of Gary Peterson, um, and then the federal public defender was also involved, uh, Patty Gessie, Thomas Hurd, and Michael Lieberman. Um, the uh, Oklahoma Attorney General and Rogers County District Attorney represented the state, and the basis of this post conviction application filed on May 14, twenty twenty, was that Brianna was a member of the Cherokee Nation. She was like 116th Cherokee. And the murder occurred within the boundaries of the Cherokee Nation Reservation. And therefore, the state of Oklahoma had no jurisdiction to prosecute, convict, or sentence Cole, a non-Indian, for Brianna's murder.
1: Does that mean he's going to subjugate himself to the Indian capital punishment, which I'm guessing... Uh, cruel and unusual is not a part of their constitution.
0: Well, I I don't know that they were thinking that far ahead. And actually, it there isn't. There are tribal courts on some reservations, but on most reservations, it's actually the federal court. Right. And he's I'm on a, his attorneys so have so just come problem. up with this idea. Just Eighteen, 18 of years. Daughter. 18 years after the fact, and it's based on a case called McGirt versus Oklahoma, which they found in that case, the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, it was pending, actually, it hadn't been decided. And there was another case, Murphy versus Royal, Royal in the 10th Circuit, but Murphy and McGirt were both Indians, and they found the state of Oklahoma didn't have jurisdiction to prosecute them for crimes committed on tribal land. Um, and those were decided long after Cole's conviction became final.
1: Yeah, um, but again, these were all issues that he should have brought up in two thousand and four, right?
0: He he, theoretically, yeah, he could have brought him up in two thousand and four on direct appeal. Um, he could have brought him up in um, in his post conviction. Theoretically, could have even maybe brought him up in federal post conviction. Well, yes, even because he the trial, he knew her status. Yeah. Yeah.
1: I mean, this um, is something he should have brought up even, yeah, during his actual trial.
0: Yeah. Or prior to the trial, actually. He should have filed a yeah, exactly prohibition to say, prior hey, to yeah. the trial. Right.
1: So, so on, hey, you don't have standing.
0: On May 29th, um, the, uh, Oklahoma Court of Criminal Appeal dismissed the application and denied the motion to hold that everything in abeyance because neither Murphy nor McGirt were final decisions, and they found Cole's petition was premature. Then on August twelfth, twenty twenty, after McGirt was decided, uh, Cole refiled an identical successive application. And that was remanded by the court on August 24th to the district court of Rogers County for an evidentiary hearing. The hearing was held on September 28th. And then an order on remand was issued on November 18th, basically finding that Brianna was an Indian and the crime occurred in Indian country. Um, The administrative things were done and um, the record was completed Finally, on December 7th, 2020, and there was some supplemental briefing filed. And uh, because it looked like he had a good claim that he was going to be successful, the federal court indicted him in the Northern District of, of Oklahoma for first-degree murder in Indi- Indian country. And that was on April 6th, 2021. Um, on April 29th, 2021, the state filed a supplemental brief arguing that Cole's claim was available f- before McGirt was decided and pointed out that his successive position, his second success position raising identical issues, was filed in May of 2020. Um, on April 29th, the Oklahoma Court of Criminal Appeals granted Cole relief vacated the conviction and remanded to the Rogers County trial court with instructions to dismiss. Uh, On the same date, the state filed a motion to stay the mandate because they were going to appeal. And the mandate was stayed until June 1st, 2021. Then on the 26th of May, the state filed a further stay request for stay um, pending the US Supreme Court's order staying its mandate uh, or seeking a further stay in light of the s- Supreme Court's order staying its mandate in a case called Oklahoma versus Bossy. Uh, the uh, Court of Criminal Appeals agreed and issued an indefinite stay of its mandate. And then um, the Oklahoma Court of Criminal Appeals, and this is interesting. Um, they had another case called State ex rel. Marloff versus Wallace before them at the same time that this was going on with Cole, and in that case, they denied retroactive application of McGirt on state post conviction review. In other words, they said McGirt, if your conviction is final you're not entitled to relief under McGirt. It's only McGirt only applies if your charges are still pending at the time you seek to apply McGirt and say, the state doesn't have jurisdiction to try me, convict me or sentence me. And on August 31st, 2021, the Oklahoma Court of Criminal Appeals vacated its order granting relief, withdrew its opinion, and um, its previous order granting post-conviction release were vacated and set aside, and that opinion was withdrawn. And then they issued a new opinion on October 7, 2021, denying post-conviction relief and denying Cole's motion to stay proceedings finding that McGirt and post-McGirt rulings shall not apply retroactively to void a final state conviction. So, almost. Uh, But again, I think McGirt McGirt was an Indian. And McGirt challenged the state's uh, jurisdiction over him because he was an Indian and his crime was on an Indian country.
1: Well, and, um, and he might have, this, um, Cole would have opened himself up to a hate crime as well. So he might have been glad that he didn't um, roll that way.
0: I don't know that that would have been, um, I, I don't think that that would have been possible because he didn't, he never expressed know, any I'm, animus yeah, I'm toward so, I was Ariana. being a
1: little tongue-in-cheek, I apologize. Um, but I he, he
0: would have been tried in federal court. And by this time, federal court, uh, you know, President Biden has said, we're not going to seek death penalty.
1: Yeah, that's true.
0: And I think they I think they thought there'd be a new canvas for competency. And, um, you know, challenges and all that. So um, the mandate also issued on the same date and uh, there was a motion for uh, leave to dismiss without prejudice filed in the federal case because now that his uh, state conviction has been reinstated, there's no need to prosecute him in federal court, and that was granted on October 14, 2021, Uh, and his warrant was returned unserved on october 19th 2021 um cole filed a writ to the u.s supreme court seeking a determination by it that mcgert did apply retroactively to convictions that were final when it was decided the uh, state filed a respondents brief that was on january 3rd 2022 and they basically uh Frame the question as whether state courts must apply McGirt retroactively on state post conviction review. And on February 22nd, 2022, that petition was denied by the U.S. Supreme Court. So the U.S. Supreme Court chose not to determine retroactive application of McGirt uh, at this time. That may be another case for another day. Um, so then on February 17th, 2022, Cole's attorneys go back to federal court and they seek to reopen the case for the competency claims. Uh, they try to have an ex-friend appointed to act on Cole's behalf. The state opposes that because Uh, counsel couldn't demonstrate that Cole was incapable of acting on his own behalf and that the self-appointment, because this is a person who's been acting, acting on Cole's behalf for years, uh, but they couldn't find, they couldn't prove that his self-appointment or his self-appointment was insufficient to meet the, the rules uh, under Whitmore, which is a Supreme court case. Um, the Cole filed a reply and basically they argued that because he would not make decisions and placed them in God's hands, he needed an, an ex-friend to act for him. On April 14th, 2022, uh, the next friend's appointment was denied. There was a minute order denying, uh, Cole's motion to reconsider and the court found no error in its prior order denying his request on June 9, 2022. Then the state and Cole agreed to a mental health evaluation at the Oklahoma uh state, uh the Oklahoma Forensic Center. And that was ordered on July first, twenty twenty two. Um or rather no, that was agreed on in June on Later in June, Cole filed a motion for access by a defense expert to evaluate him while he's at the state facility um, and sought further state court proceedings to determine his competency to be executed um, and saying that that would be necessary under Ford versus Um, The The court denied the motion and found that the motion was premature in light of the remedies available under Ford and that Cole had expressly agreed to an evaluation at the Oklahoma Forensic Center that would be performed by an expert chosen by the center and that the court was not going to let him now renege on that agreement because that's what he was trying to do. Uh, And on July 21st, 2022, the, the expert, Dr. Orr, submitted a report to the court, which was sealed, but I think the based on inferences that I draw from the Cole's attorney's actions, he found Cole to be competent to stand, to be executed. Um, And, you know, it's funny because Cole won't cooperate with the defense experts, but then he cooperates with the state experts. And at that time to Dr. Orth, he said, I'm going to be executed for killing my daughter. And I take responsibility for killing my daughter.
1: Yeah, you can always, you know, it seems like on a lot of these things, they they go halfway, but they don't, they're never fully committed because, you know, they're obviously, he's faking it.
0: Right, right. So um, then again, the the execution process between, uh, because of the, the challenge to the protocol and use of medazolam as the first drug. Uh, There were no executions in Ark Arca- in Oklahoma. I keep wanting to say Arkansas. I don't know why. Um, between May uh, March first, twenty twenty one, and June first, twenty twenty two, the state and Cole each filed their own status reports of the proceedings and the processes. Um. And then on June 6, 2022, we've already talked about Judge Frio, um, or Friot or however you pronounce his name, I'm sorry if I'm pronouncing it wrong, uh, found that ex- Oklahoma's execution protocol was constitutional and so he dismissed uh, the challenge by the inmates. On June 10th, of course, we know from Glossop and Coddington that the state filed a notice seeking 25 execution dates over the next two years. And um, Cole was determined to be third in line because of the position of his uh, or or when he completed his post-conviction challenges. And on June 13th, his attorneys filed a, an objection and sought to hold setting of execution dates in abeyance until the pardon and parole board was shown to be compliant. Uh, apparently, the um, they believed that there was no mental health expert appointed or sitting on the board, if I recall correctly. Um. The Pardon and Parole Board immediately provided information about Scott Williams, who is a mental health expert and has worked in such a field for however long. And so uh, they withdrew their objection on the 14th of June. Then they filed an objection to setting an execution date based on pending matters in federal court, um, citing their mental health evaluation ordered in federal court which was still ongoing at the time and the need for further litigation under Ford versus Rainwright and relying on a federal public defender's letter to the warden asserting that Cole was incompetent to be executed. Because what the writ of mandamus does is it makes the the warden have to comply with state law to determine whether Cole is competent or not. Um, and then, but there are certain certain bars you have to meet. Um, the appellee, which was the state responded on the 17th of June, pointing out, as they did with Glossop and I think Coddington, they cite no case law supporting their request to delay setting an execution date, that the issues raised regarding Cole's competency can be resolved prior to the date requested by the state and that setting an execution date and resolving competency issues is actually the normal course rather than holding an execution date in abeyance until competency is determined. Right, that makes sense. Um, They filed a reply that basically said everything the state said was a misconception. Um, And some of these replies that I'm reading from the defense, and I'm seeing it in Ronnie Reed's case more and more, I think that the attorneys are really coming very close to the line of not demonstrating the candor to the tribunal that they're supposed to do under the ethical rules, as well as being confrontational and attacking the person of the state, the prosecutors um, rather than their position.
1: Can you say a little bit more about that? What do you mean by the candor?
0: Well, they're supposed the to—they're supposed to tell the truth. They're—I um, you. They're—you know—they're not supposed to say to blatantly lie. And like with with Stacey Steidt's case, I'm sorry. Everything the Innocence Project says about what witnesses have said—I mean, they lied about what Curtis. Um. Davis said. They lied because they said he said Jimmy Finnell told him he got home at 11 o'clock or 10 o'clock. When Curtis Davis said no such thing, he told the guy I don't know what time he got home. I'm just guessing based on how long and when I get home when I'm involved in this little league. Practice it
1: got it pain, so basically they have to they have to at least mm-hmm. i mean they can't knowingly and blatantly lie yeah. you talk about cancer yeah. they have to at least they can't just completely and intentionally misrepresent facts which seems obvious but it also
0: right. and it's I
1: not a lot of them clearly do it. it
0: it's not a matter and it and it goes beyond in my opinion it's going beyond citing the facts that support your position and ignoring the ones that don't it includes actually misrepresenting what a witness said um and and the dahlia de Pulido case was another example of that i mean i right. contemplated so, so, my- for weeks whether or not to report brian claypool to the california bar because the the motion to dismiss and the writ of prohibition were nothing but lies
1: so there's a yeah. little bit of this, you know. They can they can do some of this stuff on TV and in social media. They can promote a little bit of smoke and mirrors, but at the end of the day, their obligation and their legal briefs is to be honest and they can't they Correct. can't take the BS they sell publicly into the court. Correct.
0: And and they're and you know, they're doing it in the court of public opinion already. Because they're misrepresenting what happened at court proceedings in their press releases all the time. Right. But, but you
1: can't bring that court of public opinion into the actual courts.
0: Correct. You have to be you yeah, and I, and like I said I think that they're they're coming very close to the line. And there's a distinction between only citing the facts that support your position and misrepresenting all of the facts as a whole. And I think that's what they're doing more often than not, is they're misrepresenting the facts as a whole Um, and Uh, misrepresenting what witnesses said, uh, even witnesses who have totally destroyed your position. Um, And I'm getting a note that my internet connection is unstable, so um, let's get back on track. and, And I'm sorry if I've dropped. Are you still there, Kyle?
1: I am. Yeah, you've been great. Okay. I haven't lost you at all.
0: Okay. All right. Well, let's get back on track because I don't want my my um my connection to crap out. So, um, the court denied on the July first. Of course, we know from Coddington and Glossop, uh, Cole's objection to setting a date was denied because there was no action currently pending in state court at that time. And his date was set for October 20th, 2022. On July 5th, a clemency hearing was set for next Tuesday, September 27th, 2022. And briefs were ordered, or petitions were ordered to be filed by um, September 16th. So the petition on August 15th, Cole filed a petition for writ of mandamus a petition for proper evaluation by experts, because he doesn't like the expert, the opinion rendered by Dr. Orth, a motion for an evidentiary hearing, all challenging Cole's competency to be executed, seeking state proceedings to determine his competency, and seeking to have him evaluated by experts chosen by Cole count, Cole's counsel. Um, And they... Uh, the court filed an order for a status conference on dis- on September 21st, 2022, at 9 a.m. That was on August 15th. The state filed a motion to strike or reschedule that status conference to expedite the proceedings, seeking a, an earlier date. Um, the Cole filed a response, um, seeking discovery from the state to expedite the process. Uh, And seeking that the state respond to this this discovery prior to modifying any status conference date, uh, the state filed another response to the writ of mandamus, basically citing that petitioner had been found to be competent by Dr. Orth and that the prior claims of incompetence have all been rejected, objecting to the motion for evidentiary hearing because he failed to meet the burden are the threshold requirements for a hearing in other words his the 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 competency petition cites 2008 2015 uh visits from the attorneys where cole wouldn't speak to them but doesn't cite anything demonstrating his condition in 2022 or a change in his condition in 2022 and that's what you have to do in order to get a hearing. Um, they also filed a motion in a response to the motion to expedite discovery, pointing out that a motion for discovery was not filed and that Cole's not entitled to discovery. And then objecting to evaluation by experts because Cole agreed to the evaluation by Dr. Orth, and now he doesn't like the results, so he's trying to get another um, another uh, evaluation. He filed an omnibus, Cole filed an ominous, omnibus reply, which was a reply to everything filed by the state, uh, disagreeing with Dr. Orth's findings, pointing out he has an expert that doesn't think Dr. Orth did a good job, uh, alleging that there are records that demonstrate Cole's deteriorating mental health condition, and um, that he has object, uh, evaluations that contradict Dr. Orth, although I think all these precede Dr. Orth by multiple years. Um, he's also relying on the, the paranoid schizophrenia diagnosis, which, again, having a mental illness or a personality disorder does not make one crazy or incompetent to stay in trial to be held legally culpable or to be executed. Um, There was a motion for stay of execution filed on August 31st. uh, An order issued on August 31st, continuing the hearing to September 14th at 9 a.m. And that was actually filed on, I think there was like a status conference on the 31st. And uh, I think the motion to stay was denied and the request for written discovery was continued. And uh, the state has filed proposed findings of fact for the mandamus, basically citing Cole's long history of cutting off communication with counsel when they question his competency or his religious beliefs and pointing out that everything cited by Cole's attorneys just shows that that pattern's continuing, and that his competency has previously been destru- decided, and he's demonstrated no change in circumstances, and that Doctor Orth has found him to be competent as of twenty twenty one. There is an evidentiary hearing set for uh, for September thirtieth at nine a.m. Um, and the judge is allowing Ferris, who is the warden, and Cole. To be the only two witnesses called, everything else is going to be submitted on a paper record, reports, etc. Um, Cole did file his clemency petition, which again cites his psychiatric, psychiatric and medical diagnoses, his history of alcohol and substance abuse, and history of alcohol and substance abuse by his family members, including his mother's drinking and drug use during pregnancy with him. Y'all, I am a child born in 1964. My mother drank, my mother smoked. All through her pregnancy with me. It was only in 1965 when she was pregnant with my sister that the doctor said, you should watch how much you drink now. And she was still allowed to smoke. So during that generation... It was not abnormal. Um, And, you know, I mean, yeah, his family members, like his parents, (laughs) -parents, step-parents, step-siblings gave him alcohol and drugs when he was a young child. You know, that is tragic. But it's not as tragic as breaking a nine-month-old baby in half.
1: Well, that's always the hard sorry. part of those things. Like, yeah, it's tragic. You had a horrible childhood, and that's terrible, but that doesn't give you a right to kill your child.
0: And that's and not really, a
1: blanket excuse. The
0: really, really sad part is it barely mentions Brianna or offers any insight or remorse for her death. Or what? Right. That's, that that's what's missing
1: from all these cases is yeah, there's no remorse. There's no, I feel horrible.
0: You know? Um, and, and no and no remorse for those affected by her murder. So um, the petitioners also filed proposed findings of a fact. That's Cole's attorneys. And it's, you know, it basically cites shaky factual findings, citing events in history from 2008 and 2015 and um, and relying on opposing expert findings of incompetence based on mostly on speculation because Cole won't cooperate with these doctors when they're sent to evaluate him by the defense. Um, On September 23rd, 2022, um, in the federal competency proceedings, the warden filed a request to communicate with Dr. Orth without involving Cole's counsel relative to pending future state court proceedings, and that was granted. Uh, and the judge said, my my order appointing Orth was never meant to restrict either party's access to Dr. Orth. Um, so that's pretty much Benjamin Cole. Um, he does have a clemency hearing set for Tuesday, although if he... Uh, if his 20 uh, 2015 he may not even participate in the hearing because he refused to participate in 2015 and, and clemency was denied three to two
1: and I'm in his date is October 20th is that right
0: yes and then he and also I'm, sorry, has, I'm
1: having a senior moment is he in front of Glossop
0: well, he's now in front of Glossop. Glossop was scheduled to be executed recent. the 22nd yeah. of September.
1: Right. But and then, yeah.
0: Governor Stitt, I don't know why, um, granted an extension, uh, uh, yeah. a stay to give the courts a chance to resolve Glossop's issues.
1: So um, they're re adjudicating it for the 15th time.
0: Yeah. So uh, and and Reed Smith has issued a third report and there's been another press conference because they know they don't stand a snowball's chance in hell in court. And so now they're keeping everything in the court of public opinion. Um uh, and it it's just more extrajudicial hearsay BS designed to make it look like right. Justin Sneed want and using the word recant even though Justin Sneed wasn't using it properly when he used it he doesn't want to recant he's told people Glossop got me made me kill Barry Ventrice," and they even in in I think in Reed Smith in one of its reports it says that's what he told a, a you know a cellmate that's what he told his attorneys. So I don't see how you can say he's recanting when he's still telling people Richard Glossop made me do it. But yeah, uh, Glossop has been moved to to December
1: 8th. Uh, so Cole will be up first of the last three we've done.
0: Yeah. Cole is next on the 20th of October. Um, and then after that is Richard Fairbanks in November and Richard Fairbanks is our case for two weeks from tonight. No,
1: oh, excellent. Well, another great job. Thank you for all the great research. It's a fascinating case. Thank Tragic. You. I can understand why it's so hard to get through those documents and, when there's a and, child involved.
0: And fair child is difficult because it involves another child. Um so that that yeah, was also tough. difficult. Had, this
1: will be the third one in a row that have involved young children by their parents.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, we we had a couple of cases between Lucio and
1: Oh, that's right. Um, You're right.
0: But yeah, it, it it's, it's difficult because involving the child um, is very it, it's really tough to read. And it's For me, it's tough to read because even though, yes, they're entitled to due process and they're entitled to a determination that their conviction sentence meet uh, the standards of due process, it's still very difficult when the victim was a nine-month-old baby who was crying. And her father grabbed her by the ankles and flipped her over.
1: Yeah. The one man in the world whose sole responsibility is to protect her for her entire life until mm-hmm. his last breath. I and mean, he's the one that kills her. It's terrible.
0: And inf- inflicted a fatal injury. A daughter,
1: I, I want to execute it myself. I,
0: I could have, yeah. I mean, I could have somebody, if you did this, and then he saw and he realized oh my god what did i do and immediately called for help he didn't even do that he went back to drinking and playing video games and it was only when Bri- brianna stopped breathing and his wife girlfriend whatever mother uh wanted to call ems that he tried to help this child um so yeah, he yeah. violated
1: his foundational risk.
0: It's just not bother. It's just not, it just makes me, and then it upset the, the, the saying that there was no jurisdiction because she was an Indian and the murder occurred on Indian, in Indian country. That was when my blood started boiling. 18 years after.
1: Absolutely. You're now yeah, saying, you're
0: just, yeah. oh, guess what? They don't have jurisdiction. And, I really have to say, this is all the attorneys. I don't think this is any of this is cold. I don't think, think coal... they're
1: just kind of acting independently.
0: Yeah, I think they're looking for any, it's a spaghetti defense. Throw it at the wall and see if it sticks. And um, yeah, it's just, it's just crazy. So, um, so that's cool, and we'll see where where it stands. And I'll, you know, once the uh, once the order issues on the competence, I will certainly update everybody, and um, I will update everybody on the clemency after that is decided Tuesday. Because, uh, well, we'll get a determination from parole board. We won't know from Governor Stitt probably until October 19th. Because he's just a dick. Waiting to yeah, the last minute. It,
1: right. it is kind of counter stereotypical to see, you know, a governor of Oklahoma issuing all these stays of people that are obviously guilty.
0: Well, I I think that he's getting pressure. I know from Julius Jones, he got pressure. And that's why he ended up uh, uh, granting the recommendation of the parole board. And con- commuting his sentence to life without the possibility of parole. Um, I think with Glossop, he's getting some pushback from the legislatures legislators who still... Have no freaking right. business involving themselves in this process.
1: Yeah, exactly. Um,
0: it, you know, if they want to involve themselves in the process, then they can look at the law and change yeah, the pass law. new laws. But I think even that has to be done with the Court of Criminal Appeals in addition to the legislature. Um, but, you know, then they do that. Fine. Lobby the Court of Criminal Appeals. To say, you know what? You can come to us as many times as you want with post-conviction writs. And we'll grant hearings on everything, and we'll grant discovery on everything, and we'll give you anything you ask for. That's not how court's supposed to work. And that's, you know, it's like um I have somebody on Twitter asking me my qualifications to say that the judge in Syed wasn't a good judge. And I'm like, what are your qualifications to say that she is? And he gives me the motion to vacate. It's like, I read that piece of crap. You know, and it's just, it's extrajudicial hearsay from a podcast and a documentary that have no basis in being brought into a court of law. And a judge certainly shouldn't be granting a motion to vacate based on What was said in serial and what was said in a documentary on HBO that are puff pieces to make it look like Adnan Syed is innocent or that he didn't get a fair trial? So, um, all right, well, off my soapbox before I fall off and hurt myself. (laughs) (laughs) Any final thoughts, Kyle?
1: No, I think it's, it's a, again, thank you for all your research. You do such a, you have such a great podcast because you do so much exhaustive work compared to most of the true crime world. It's basically a two-hour reading of Wikipedia. So always educational, learn so much about sort of the legal system and all these sort of complicated processes of appeals.
0: Thank you. I appreciate that. All right, so... Um, I'm ready to go watch House of the Dragon. Thank you for listening to Basically too. <laughs> Wait,
1: Yeah, that's You should. That's what the next case needs to be adjudicating. Uh, Damon's latest crime
0: <laughs> oh in his Lord. appeal before the king. <laughs> uh, I don't. Well, I don't know. I, 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 I need a scorecard for that show. Um, but I kind of I like watched Game of Thrones for entertainment late in the game and I really did not care <laughs> about the storylines or what happened or how it happened or when it happened although there were a couple of of uh deaths that I was like oh my God um but uh you know like blowing up the the sept with all the people in it
1: yeah,
0: and then having and then having your son walk out a window because she killed his wife, you know that was pretty. Was it worth it? <laughs> I don't think yeah,
1: so. Some pretty insanity.
0: So, um, although she did make herself the queen with no right, but anyway, can I can I close it now?
1: Absolutely. Have a great,
0: <laughs> great of your weekend.
1: Thanks for all your work.
0: Thank you for listening to Based in Fact, a true crime podcast with Lisa O'Brien and co-host Kyle Evans. If you like the show and want to know more, you can find us on Facebook or follow me on Twitter at O'Brien L. Join us in two weeks for Episode 17, State of Oklahoma versus Richard Fairchild. Fa- Fairchild is scheduled to face execution in Oklahoma on November 17, 2022. Fairchild was convicted of the brutal child abuse murder of the three-year-old son of his girlfriend Adam Broomhall on November 14, 1993. We'll talk about the events of that day the evidence of Fairchild's guilt his trial conviction and sentence and legal challenges mounted since his conviction in 1996. Until then have a great two weeks and stay safe. Good night.